0: a soon have the greatest novel known to man.
1: Okay guys, welcome back to uh, this week's episode of the Grimerica Show. With me as always is Graham. How's it going, Graham?
2: Hey, I'm doing well.
1: I guess I can't really call it this week because we haven't really stuck sort to any sort of a fucking schedule so far.
2: Yeah, it could be this days the way things are going.
1: <laughs> or sometimes it could. Well, it's been a while since we... By the time these guys get this one, it'll have been over a week, I think, since yeah. McKenna. Yeah. But what a great chat McKenna was, eh? Fucking uh, one of my favorites so far, I would say.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was really good.
1: And uh, so... And the other... Oh, yeah. Big news. Our apps are now available. Uh, the Grimerica Show app can now be uh, purchased in the uh, in the Amazon uh, Android app store. The for the Windows 8. PC for the Windows phone, and now on your iOS device. Uh, It's kind of a pain in the ass on iOS because you have to download Podcast Box first, and then you can buy the Grimerica Show app. So uh, to be honest, the app is kind of a a piece of shit. I I got it the other day.
2: (laughs) Well, we're used to using eye catcher for podcasts, right? So
1: Yeah, and even even like the iTunes podcast thing is like that's a shitty player, but it's probably still better than the app. Like, uh I'm gonna be honest with you guys. I don't want you to go out and buy it and uh think that i'm trying to sell something that's not great it's probably not great you're probably not even going to use it to listen to the show Um, it is good for contacting us i guess on twitter facebook or email but you can do that easily anyway so there's really absolutely no reason to go out and buy this app um, other than it supports the show so that's just one way to, to to support the grimerica show
2: is that a good way for for people on droids to uh, to listen though? Because I know uh, it's a little bit seems a bit more difficult for people with droids.
1: Yeah, you know what? I actually have heard that that people on droids it's uh, hard to find a good pod player. Like on i on iPhones, I guess. Me and you both have iPhones, so we're kind of spoiled. I think. Uh, but, on the Android device, yeah, go ahead and buy it it 's just a few bucks. uh Libson takes a cut. I think the app store takes a cut, so I think it actually costs us money you know they, they don't <laughs> don 't think we 're making millions <laughs> yeah, here. I we think lose it actually, money every time I think we lose money every time uh, it gets sold but
2: so uh the other thing you wanted to mention did you say we were in thirty eight countries now 38 countries,
1: yeah thirty oh. eight or thirty nine countries yet with uh um I think the Maldives or some shit I never even heard of is the latest one. And Mandadeek or something, Mandradeek. Uh, sorry, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Yeah. Geez. But that's uh, the last
2: one we have in that country
1: now. <laughs> yeah, that might be the last one. But no, yeah, pretty cool. Um uh, there's a couple main mainstays. like we've got uh, we seem to have developed quite a fan base in New Zealand which caught me off guard. Yeah, which is great. And, of course, we've got our, our biggest fan, our Kiwi ambassador, uh, Jared Drake. I'd like to give him a big <laughs> shout-out. He's just a, a great guy. I've been, I've been back and forth with him, uh, with him on Twitter and uh, Facebook, and you guys should follow him on Twitter. He just started uh, a couple of weeks ago, and, and he's a great guy there from New Zealand.
2: And one more state to go in the U.S. of A, and that's what, Mississippi?
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah, we've almost conquered the uh, U.S. of A. We just need uh, Mississippi.
2: The one we all learned as a kid, that M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I one.
1: Yeah, so uh, call someone in Mississippi and tell them to get the fuck off their ass here and and download (laughs) at least one episode of the Grime America show so we can say we're in every state. A
2: bunch of lame asses in Mississippi.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, come on,
2: man. (laughs) Just kidding. Of course, just kidding.
1: Uh, Did you listen to the Grayling Report this week? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I really, uh I really got like that discussion they had. I forget the guy's name who uh, made the quote about intelligent uh, machines or devices. Wasn't with- it
2: Paul Davies, the same guy that wrote the book that Hillary Clinton had in her hand? I think. Whoa. Yeah.
1: No, I didn't know that. Is that true? I think so. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, about his quote there. Do you do you know the quote off? I I oh, can't man. remember. Uh- you catch me off guard here. No, I don't. <clears throat> Well, uh, anyway, it it was something along the lines of uh, contact with an intelligent uh, species would be made via intelligent intelligent robots, basically.
2: Basically, AI probes instead of biological entities, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, which to me makes a lot of sense, because if you think about a a civilization even 10,000 light years away, by the time their radio signals could reach us, how far along would they be? Think of how, how far along we'll be even 500 years after the uh, advent of fucking radio signals.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I think there's way too much speculation from these guys that are, you know, theoretical physicists. And then they start trying to pretend that they know... What a species is going to do Like he's a physicist How do you know what, what an alien species is going to do I would want to go to the planet physically I don't want to send a fucking probe over there So you can watch it virtually on your video screen Or whatever I want to be on the, on the planet Wouldn't you go if you had a chance
1: Yeah maybe But what if it turns out that um, That biological entities can't, can't do What is needed to be done to travel those distances Like maybe, maybe fucking wormholes and shit are cool But you can't go through them if you're biological I don't
2: know, I think Or maybe uh,
1: that's their fucking singularity self. Maybe. So maybe that's that's you in a couple hundred years fucking rolling around Mars.
2: I just think we don't know, and that's all I'm gonna say. I have no idea, but I'm not gonna, you know, try and say that oh it's all gonna be uh artificial intelligence and mechanical probes coming. I don't know.
1: Maybe you'll get singularity first so that you'll just have to live forever on Mars with no food <laughs> or anybody to talk to. <laughs> Did you do? Uh, we got to get that video done. Speaking of Mars One,
2: yeah, this weekend let's do it.
1: Okay, yeah, I got. Uh, you got I some got, time. I got some time. Yeah, I got a, right. a ball tournament
2: tomorrow, but we can make some time maybe on Sunday for that. Just take it easy, so you're not too hung. So uh, the other thing I wanted to run by you just to get your thought. Um, this has happened to me a couple times. So I was listening to Nick Redfern's uh, audio book "Keep Out." I downloaded it from Audible, of course um
1: gotta love audible
2: so i want to know what you think about this i'm walking down the street and i'm listening to it and the a word comes on on my headphones and as i look down at this guy's shirt who's passing by me at the exact moment i hear the word i read the guy's shirt and it says element so i mean that's a bit of a a synchronicity i would say like it, it was the timing was impeccable so i read the shirt and i heard the word in my in my earphones what do you think
1: uh, that's, that's, yeah, that's definitely synchronistic, if nothing else.
2: That's all you got to say about it? <laughs> it's not just a coincidence, is it?
1: I think it probably is just a coincidence. Oh,
2: so but I, no, it It's happened be... to me before,
1: with audiobooks
2: especially, and it's kind of weird.
1: Yeah, 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 I remember that before. It is kind of weird. Maybe, well, who knows? Who knows? Synchronicities might be fucking, might mean something. They might mean something.
2: We're on the path that we should be on, maybe?
1: Yeah, or, yeah, maybe, or maybe you should buy a lottery ticket.
2: Maybe I should download another Audible book?
1: Yeah, I think, well, everyone should download an Audible book. If you're not on Audible, you're really missing out. Uh, you can't find a better way to mow the lawn, or when you're going for a car ride, fuck, you listen to a book, you're learning, yeah. or you're suspended. I, 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 myself, I usually just do, like, I like to learn shit. I, I'm not a big novel guy.
2: I used to be. I used to be. Now I'm into to nonfiction. I used to be fiction, but...
1: Yeah, I think, well, I, out of the probably 50 or so audio books I've listened to, I think I listened to Brave New World on audio, and I listened to The Chrysalids on audio, and all the rest were some sort of, some sort of learning book.
2: I've got Childhood's uh, End, which is that famous one from Arthur C. Arthur C. Clarke.
1: Yeah, well... Uh, I'm
2: going to give that a try.
1: Yeah, how long is it?
2: It's pretty long. Fuck, I
1: hate when they're right long.
2: Yeah, it's like nice that. when you can get through them in a day. That fucking Ray Kurzweil one was 24 hours, dude. I listened to that book 14 of that fantasy series I've been reading since 88. It was 40 hours long.
1: That is fucking crazy. (laughs) But anyway, you guys should definitely try out Audible. Uh, You're going to get a free shot. I think you do have to give them your credit card number. But uh, as long as you cancel within 30 days, uh, you're not going to get charged anything. You still get a free book, and uh, it's just another way to support the show.
2: Go to audibletrial.com forward slash Grimerica for your free trial.
1: That's right, yeah, you get a free book and, uh, and uh, 30 months at reduced book prices if you want to try a couple more, and then you still cancel, and that's it. All right, what else do you want to talk about? Well, I think maybe we should talk about the Royal Baby. That's uh, the big news.
2: I don't know, man. I haven't heard much about it because I purposely don't fucking follow that shit. I can't do it. It's just disgusting to me.
1: She's your uh she he, that kid could be your new king. King,
2: I didn't vote for him.
1: <laughs> you don't vote for kings. <laughs> did you hear about uh did you hear about those crazy fucking cat attacks and dog attacks and shit?
2: Oh uh, yeah, that's just absolutely crazy. And I'm a cat lover, so I don't know, this is pretty freaky to me.
1: Your cat will eat you if you die.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so apparently there was a a what do they call it? Cats? A bunch of them together? It's not a, a murder of cats or a pack of cats? What, what is it? I have no idea. It's just w- a band. It's a band of wild cats. <laughs> a band? A band of wild cats. And they jumped this woman with a little poodle, and they scratched and bit her and knocked her over, and like she had to get rushed to the hospital, and the poodle had to get rushed to the vet. Yeah, I think the chick that got uh, attacked by the dogs has actually had a heart attack and shit. Yeah, the vet told him that in 20 years in his job, he had never seen such a thing. He couldn't find a single explanation for the cat's abnormal behavior, she said. I'm not too worried about some cats, I don't think. And where, where do we see that? Where, that was on uh, the local.fr, so that's some French, uh, French newspaper. Do you think, I don't know, if I'm walking down the
1: street, I ain't scared of a pack of cats, man. Not one bit. A pack of dogs, that shit would be yeah, but fucking what if crazy. What if
2: you got a little poodle with you?
1: Well, I wouldn't have a little poodle with me. I might have my little pug with me, and he'd—he well, fucking every man for himself, dude.
2: What's the lesson here? Poodles can't defend, can't
1: stand up for you at all. Yeah, but who gives a shit about the dog? The lady got taken down by a pack of cats. There's no way a pack of cats is getting me on the ground.
2: So there's some pretty funny comments here about uh, about this.
1: Do tell. (laughs)
2: I don't know if I can even read this. Yeah, you could can read no, it, man. It's can. a
1: Grimerica show, No Boundaries. Is that the dude who shoots them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I read this that. This is shit. For the
2: comment from Woodsman one <laughs> He says alligators attack on mass too, using only the reptilian brainstem functions. Many insect species also attack on mass. Is this a proper higher mental function of some highly evolved mammal? And considering that out of hundreds of cats that I had to shoot and bury on my lands to stop them from destroying all my wildlife, I always had been using precision fatal chest shots, all of them dying in under three seconds, often less than one second. Don't waste even a 122 on the hundreds of them that I had to shoot and bury. Only one time I did, on the advice of others, try a fatal headshot on a cat. It was perfectly aimed the cat staring at me beneath the bird feeder, right between the eyes, aimed my, with my laser sight. It took four more shots to make it die. I will never use that method again. Far less humane.
1: Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> um, well, so, like I say, that does not uh, reflect our views. That's just a comment on a website that uh,
2: that Graham decided to read. There's another one here. You have to be kidding. She's still traumatized today and is bordering on depression? I know. Well, like I say, I I am I am one
1: hundred percent in the corner of the chick who got attacked by fifteen fucking stray dogs. Dogs uh, would probably fuck me up, but the cats. There's no way that a pack of cats is taking me down. No, it's a
2: band of cats.
1: I don't care about a band of cats, a fucking herd of cats, a pride of lion. Well, lions are yeah, maybe it's it's a pride pride. of cats.
2: So. So what's this about dogs then? There's, an also, there's also a pack of dogs Yeah, attacked? Chicken Texas got attacked by 15 stray dogs. Oh my God. And they like chewed her down to the bone in a couple spots on her
1: arms and legs. And then she had a heart attack. And last I heard, she, she was getting a little better, but she's still not in real great condition. What? So I... I see, you, like you can agree with the dogs. Are you telling me that 50 cats could take you down?
2: No, not 50. No, there was only a few cats. 50 could take you down, of course. A few cats took her down? Uh, yeah. So, But seriously, why How is there many, a stray no, dog? No,
3: no, no, no. How many But cats? when do
2: stray dogs band together to attack people? I know. They said,
1: it's funny the way it was worded, because uh, I think it was on, on Before It's News, but uh, the way they worded it was that a pit bull cross was the leader of the pack.
2: Well, yeah. It but,
1: makes uh, sense, though, because they're, like, they're like wolves and shit back in the day, right?
2: No, it doesn't make sense. You can't just you don't just go back to the roots like millions of years ago when dogs used to be wolves and they attacked people in packs. Like is it there must be some homeless problem going on or something. There's so many people Maybe there's these ghost towns that have, everybody's left and because they, they can't afford their places and they're uh, leaving their dogs around or something.
1: Well, I think it's more likely that it's a bunch of dogs that were probably abandoned at a real young age, like, you know what I mean? Like no, when they it's were not puppies, bunch And they kind of grew up together and they don't really, you know, they weren't, they weren't, if a dog isn't raised in a house with people then it it's going to do whatever it takes to get what it wants. Isn't what it this needs. in a
2: city, though? Like, you yeah, think that there's a, these homeless city, yeah. dogs roaming around growing up in packs? <laughs>
1: it turns out that they're it. How fucked up is that, though? Could you th- imagine that? Like, a couple cats, I'm not scared. Can you imagine you're at the bus stop and, like, on some lonely road in Calgary, like, in the industrial area? And, like, a pack of fucking 15 or 20 dogs with a pit bull leading the charge comes around the corner and just <laughs> starts charging you?
2: That would seem like a nightmare. I'd have a heart attack, too. So, I, I heard it's a DARPA a DARPA weapon. Stray dogs? Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, before we get into that, uh, let us say that our 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 thoughts go out to, our, to our, this or- room. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, <Yeah, so> I... <laughs> Our thoughts go out and prayers go out to the attacked.
1: Yeah, yeah. I hope she gets better. Uh, um, we're not. We're not making light of the situation. Not we're just at all. No, it's just it. really
2: weird to hear of of like uh, domesticated pack attacks on the same time, like dogs and cats.
1: I still cannot believe that that chick, chick got taken down by a couple of cats.
2: <clears throat> it wasn't a couple. It was more than a couple.
1: Well, well, get come on! How many? Give me number. A
2: number I, 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 a It dozen? doesn't say. It doesn't say.
1: Even no. a dozen cats—they don't have a chance against me.
2: Yeah, I don't know. You don't have ca- Do you have cats?
1: I used to have cats. I got yeah. rid of them all because I hate cats. Well, there
2: you go. <laughs> cats wouldn't attack me. I don't think because I love
3: cats.
1: So uh, we got Nick Redford coming up on this episode. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, he's always an interesting guy uh, to listen to, so uh, that'll be good.
2: Yeah, great, w- great guy to chat to in person too.
1: Yeah, he's a fun guy. He was at the Paradigm Symposium, and we kind of chatted with him there. And he likes to, you know, have a drink, and he's really accessible. and
2: I hope more of his books come out on audio.
1: Yes, yeah, audio is so much better. I just having,
2: have having so little
1: time to that. actually read. Pretty soon, you'll just be able to like fucking download it into your head and you'll just know. I
2: know, that's what RPJ was talking about that, eh? He wants to download like 10 books a week or something like that. Perfect. (laughs) So, here we go uh, with our little chat with Nick Redfern. Yeah,
1: we'll take a quick break and we'll be back with our uh, interview with Nick. Okay, guys, welcome uh, back to the Grimerica show. It's uh, Darren here, as always, and with me, as always, is Graham. How's it going, Graham?
2: Hey, I'm doing great, Darren.
1: So we got a great guest tonight. We got Nick Redfern with us, uh, author of uh, a whole shitload of books. Uh, Graham uh, kind of has a rundown for us, I think, of a few of them anyway.
2: Yeah, Nick's, uh, Nick's a prolific author of the 14 phenomena. He's got all kinds of books like uh, Final Events, The Nassau Conspiracies, Real Men in Black, Keep Out, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, um, all kinds of uh, great monster files is one of his uh, latest ones. So that's just to name a few. He's got many more than that. And uh, Nick's one of these guys who... uh, You know he's he goes to a lot of conferences. He's very approachable. Makes himself available to all the fans. Like you can chat with him. Uh, He's he's been on many radio shows and podcasts. He blogs on tons of websites. So he's out there. Just TV uh,
1: shows too, I think. Yeah, eh? I was
2: going to mention that. Yeah.
1: Ancient Aliens and what was that? The monster one on History.
2: Monster Quest, maybe.
1: Yeah, I think. Well, we might as well ask the man himself. Uh, How's it going tonight, Nick?
0: I'm good, thanks. How's it going with you?
1: Good. Um, Good. You uh, nice and warm down there?
0: Um, you know the weather's been really weird because, like last week, um, it was boiling hot. It was like 102 degrees for five days solid in Dallas. And um, but this week, from Sunday right through till like Tuesday night. It just did not stop raining at all. I mean, literally didn't stop at all for two and a half days, and um, it dropped it right down to like the seventies. So that made it like a complete change, and everybody was like, "Oh, thank God for that."
2: <laughs> that sounds kind of like our weather. It's it's up and down. The last weekend was like winter, and yeah. uh, now uh, we're sweating a bit. It's like summer. So, yeah.
0: but, so thanks uh, for coming yeah. on
2: tonight. It's great to great to chat with you.
0: Oh, sure. I'm always happy to do. Uh, radio and whatever you know so uh, i don't mind at all
2: yeah we got uh so much to to talk to you about all your books and uh what's your your latest one is what monster files
0: yeah that's been out um since about the end of may 22nd of may i think it was so it's about two months just under two months old
2: and you haven't got another one out yet
0: (laughs) (laughs) not quite um it, it actually looks sometimes like that i have sort of you know, sort of cranked out two or three books in one go. But what sometimes happens is that I'll finish one book, for what because I'm with several different publishers, so I'll finish one book with one publisher, and they might say, well, you know, we, we're putting several other books out, so we'll put it on hold for a year or six months. And then one of the other publishers says, well, you know, we'll put this out on this date, and the two coincide together. So it looks like I've sort of had no life and just sort of, you know, typed for 24 hours a day for, you know, two years, which actually isn't the case. But <laughs> it's sometimes it looks like that when the publishers cross over, you know, with the publication dates. And um, so people say, well, how did you manage to get, you know, two or three written in that time? I said, well, I didn't. You know, one was just sat in the shelves in the Word document for eight months or whatever, you know, at the publishers.
1: Yeah, I know. Uh, I think RPJ actually uh, mentioned your army of uh, typewriting monkeys that you have in your basement.
0: <laughs> or cl- somebody said I've got like a bunch of clones or something like that. And uh, But no, it's just me. But I mean, joking aside, I mean, because this is what I do sort of full-time, I like to sort of keep regular hours. You know, if I'm not doing stuff like radio tonight or whatever, as far as writing's concerned, you know, I sort of start about... in the morning take an hour's lunch and then finish at 5 you know and I just put the laptop in sleep mode and then at nights and weekends I do nothing related to any of this you know unless like I'm promoting stuff like now Mm -hmm. Um, and I just have you know I watch the English football incorrectly called soccer by the way (laughs) (laughs) and um, or you know I go out with friends eat the town or whatever on weekends and you just have a good time so for me you know, when you're sort of doing eight hours a day, Monday to Friday, you know, you can actually get a lot done when that's, when it's, you know, it's a passion, but it's also a job. So I can sort of, you know, I just do it solid eight hours, like a regular job, Monday to Friday, and you can get a lot done, you know, when you're writing, and particularly if you've got all the research done, and then it's just a matter of, of writing the thing, you know, that's, that does make it a lot easier then.
1: Yeah, and I see you, uh, you just recently made Audible too, eh?
0: yeah, that's uh, kind of a, a first, and it's sort of cool. the one of the books keep out um, new page books. they've done a well, I guess they've done a dealer. I'm sure how many they're going to do, but um, they did like an audio uh, version. you know it's not like the old style like um, like a CD or, or a cassette or anything. It's you know just a downloadable one. Yeah uh, yeah, I mean, we both listened good, you know, to it. Know, you, oh okay, you know I haven't actually had a chance to listen to it yet, so uh,
2: yeah, it was pretty that. good. Yeah, I mean it was a great book, but it was pretty good on audio. Like I've listened to a ton of audiobooks, so it's uh, right. it's a pleasure for me to have one of your books on there. Like if you had oh, well, thank- if you had all your books on there, I'd probably go through all of them. It's just hard. Well, it's hard I to mean, find enough time to read them.
0: Yeah, I mean the ones that are uh, that's that it's already out in in audio is through New Page books. So you know, New Page may well do some others in audio, but. I mean, the the ones that aren't um, new page, you know. I, I don't know if anything will ever happen with them, you know.
1: So, any thoughts on uh, narrating one yourself?
0: Uh, I don't know if I got the energy and <laughs> to do it. You know what I mean? I think i will probably go crazy before I finish recording it. But um,
1: <laughs> yeah, I could see that. You know, that. sitting
0: there and having to read your entire book. You know, for me, I mean, for me, I shouldn't say this, you know, and it's one of my own books, but it'd be like watching paint dry <laughs> you know <it'd> be like <laughs> you know i've got to read like 70,000 words out and make sure i don't make any mistakes you know what i mean and which i'm sure i would and then you got to re-record it and re-record it i think i'd certainly leave that up to the professionals you know
1: <laughs> yeah no no, no. I, I i don't think i could handle that either um, yeah. so uh on your blog today you kind of had some uh, some big news would you mind giving us the rundown of uh, what's going on there with, uh, I think you're condensing all your blogs to one new page now.
0: No. Oh. Um, I did. I did condense all my blogs about eighteen months ago.
3: Oh really? Uh,
0: I have, yeah. I had like nine or ten different blogs, and I still they still exist. You know, I didn't close them down, but we, but I had one on like. Cryptozoology, one on Men in Black, one on Contact I had a different blog for all the different books, so people would know where to go. But it just got too sort of chaotic. So about 18 months ago, um, I set up one new blog, and then what I did, I posted a message at the top of all the old blogs saying, you know, I'm going to consolidate them, and just from now on, just use this one blog, and here's the link. But... But that isn't, that's not new. No, I did that like 18 months ago.
1: Oh, I guess I didn't notice the date. I was, I was just on there like 10 minutes ago, and I was going through oh. it. I was like, oh, look at so that. I, titled, I, I
0: it thought it actually said this morning. Was it titled A Radical Decision?
1: Yeah. Yep, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, I did that like about May last year, something
2: like
1: that. Oh, oh I guess we're just late to the party.
0: Man, here, here Darren <laughs> was thinking
2: he got a scoop on you.
0: Well, again, you know, at least it gives me a chance to explain to people why, you know, I, yeah. the reason I stopped doing the blogs. I mean, the, the good thing is, you know, all the stuff is archived at those blogs. You can still find them, and they're linked at the new blog. Um, and the, all the stuff goes back like to 2007, so there's six years worth of material there. Um, but you know, I just found it was easier to sort of go, just set one new one up, and you know, cover everything in one place, whether it's. Bigfoot, you know, Loch Ness Monster, UFOs, paranormal stuff, lecture news, you know, whatever, you know.
2: How do you fit in all these different blogs when you're when you're also writing books? Like, is it hard to juggle all the, all the information and, um, and research?
0: Not, not really. I'll tell you for why. Because, I mean, most of the books I do, I tend to the, – the two main areas of interest I have are like UFOs and cryptozoology, which is unknown animals – but, you know, if I'm sort of working on two books at one time and one's on Bigfoot and one's on, I know, hypothetically Roswell, because they're so different, you know, I can sort of spend, say, the morning doing the one book and the afternoon doing the other because there's no sort of complication where your your brain's sort of frazzled and you're trying to juggle the same material or similar material, in, you know, in two different books. It's totally different. So I can switch off from one, you know, and then switch on to another and, and you know, and then if the afternoon before I finish, I want to do a blog post or something for another site, you know. And if that's a different thing, well, you know, I can just crank that out because, again, you know, it's not sort of the same thing that your mind's been focused on for the last four or five hours or whatever.
3: Hmm.
2: Have you always been in? Have you always been interested in, in like Fortean phenomena? I noticed that you started as a, you know, you're kind of uh, working on articles and magazines like rock and fashion, and that type of thing. You, yeah. Did you have an interest back then?
0: Yeah, I do. I still actually do all that kind of writing now. I mean, the, you know, the, the stuff I do in the paranormal world, it's probably only about, probably about 60% of what I do, maybe a little bit less is, is book writing and paranormal stuff. The rest is sort of regular journalism. But yeah, when I, um, when I finished school, I worked on a, of uh, passion and music magazine back in England called Zero, and I was kind of like one of these late starters. I mean, I, I was I was crap at school. I was useless. You know, I, I did I barely made it through the English equivalent of high school. You know, I had no college education, no university, no degrees, nothing. You know, I walked out of school. I was like fuck it. You know, <laughs> literally, I'm done, and I didn't go back. And you know, it was one of these things where. I knew I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did know that I didn't want to just be, you know, doing something I hated. I didn't want to go through life just doing something I didn't want. And so I actually just stumbled on a job that, just pure coincidence, that when I um, quit school and just left, um, a job was advertised where it was saying, you know, we're looking for somebody sixteen, seventeen, um, to train them, you know, to work on a magazine. And I thought. Well, I'll I'll try it. And lo and behold, I actually got the offer of it. So I did this for like two years. And they taught me everything from sort of... Because I should should have backtracked and said, although I wasn't pretty good at school, uh, I always enjoyed writing stories when I was a little kid and reading. You know, but I I was just not good on the academic, you know, exams and tests, that kind of thing. Um, So I took the, the job on and they taught me everything, sort of interview techniques, how to... Structure features, and you know grab the reader's attention and and split it up into you know um, sections and things like that. And I found I enjoyed it, you know, because one day I'd be sort of going to a concert and then reviewing it the next day, which d- didn't really come across like real work, you know. Oh, you're going to pay me to go and see a band and then write about it? Okay. <laughs> you know? um, so and it was things like that. And they taught me sort of really, it's kind of like, you know, being thrown in the swimming pool at the deep end. You know, you've got to learn to swim. And when you're 16, it, it is a little bit daunting, but with hindsight, being thrown in at the deep end is the best thing that can happen to you, you know. So I did that, and then, um, and then a lot of it afterwards was sort of just freelance. when that job finished after two years, it was I just started doing freelance stuff for like the um, British Daily Express newspaper and a few of the paranormal magazines that existed back then. And then, sort of in the late nineties, um, the sort of the whole UFO or mid-nineties, I should say, the whole UFO and paranormal scene in Britain. Really, sort of went through the roof, and a lot of it was due to the success of the X Files, and you had magazines all over the place on the newsstands, and so I started writing from them, and then, and then took it from there, really. And so, and today, you know, I I I write the books, I do magazine articles, also a lot of people don't know this, I'm also a feature writer for Penthouse. I do a lot of work for them, on all sorts of subjects, which is a pretty good gig, (laughs) and and yeah, I do just. Any You know, it's like any job, if you're self-employed, you know, writing is about all I can do, you know, I, I'm not sort of a roofer or a plumber, you know, I can't do those things, I, so I can only do what I can do. So, you know, I, anything that's sort of writing, you know, I'll give it a try.
1: And you must spend quite a bit of your time, like, um, uh, what I like about you is you're one of those authors that doesn't just, you know, uh, read a book, you'll actually petition the government through Freedom of Information Acts and and really do a lot of homework to get the the true story out.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, when it comes to UFO stuff, I like to use the Freedom of Information Act because I think it adds credibility if you can use, demonstrate, you know, you've got files that have officially and legally been declassified through Freedom of Information regulations. And, And it's kind of like the same with the cryptozoology. You know, I mean with Bigfoot, say, for example, the Loch Ness Monster, or when I go out on these investigations, I tend to write the books how I did the investigations, sort of road trip style, you know. It was like, started, it was a dark and stormy night, you know, and I headed off to Loch Ness, that kind of thing. And the reason I write it like that is because that's how the investigations go on. You know, there's no there's no point me writing a book about the Loch Ness Monster if I'd never been to Loch Ness. You know, it's pointless. So I feel that if I'm going to write about weird creatures in the woods or the lakes, the very least you got to do is at, at least look for them, you know what I mean? And so that's... Yeah, I, I always feel that research for me isn't, you know, downloading or copy-pasting a hundred words from Wikipedia. It is, you know, mapping out the lake or whatever and going out there and camping out and just wandering in the local gas station and say, hey, you know, what's the what's the deal with a local lake monster legend, you know, just... Catch up with people in town and and do it that way. You know what I mean.
1: So have you ever? uh, So you must spend a lot of time in the woods. Have you ever uh, had an experience of your own?
0: Well, the closest I've sort of come is finding like footprints, um, like Bigfoot type prints, and things like that. And um, occasionally, you know, I have heard sort of weird noises and grunts and strange stuff. You know, I mean, granted, when you're in pitch black darkness in the woods it's sometimes difficult to differentiate what you're hearing but you know i mean there've been a few occasions like that nothing where i could specifically say anything with you know 100% certainty but where it has stuck in my mind you know down the line but, wow, that where that was kind of odd but again you know i think that's the only way to get the answers is to go looking you know you're not going to you're not going to find bigfoot on the internet it's not going to come storming out of your computer you know what i mean
2: in a chat room <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly, yeah.
2: So, any UFO sightings?
0: No, I haven't, but why I got interested in all this was because my uh, dad was in the British Royal Air Force. He worked on radar, and uh, he was actually involved in um, several UFO incidents. He was a radar mechanic, and um, this was back in the 50s, and um, he was involved in several cases during a NATO exercise called Namebrace, uh, which went on in 1952 in September. And this was a case of the radar trackers uh, picking up these fast-moving objects over the, the English Channel and the North Sea, coming in from the direction of, like, Scandinavia, Norway, um, Denmark and Sweden. And um, nobody had any idea what these things were. They were flying at incredible speeds and heights, clearly far outweighing anything that, you know, any terrestrial nation was, was flying. And uh, fighter planes were scrambled. The pilots... Um, pick them up but couldn't get close to them and uh, this went on for several nights and you know, everybody was told not to talk about it and my dad didn't say anything until I was like 14 years old you know this was sort of um you know 30 years later or something um and and that's what got me interested you know it's my dad's experience and even today you know if he's asked about it he'll say well you know we don't know what it was but you know, they were definitive UFOs and not just cuz it was my mom and dad but because he was somebody trained in the military, you know, that made me sort of think, wow, there's there's something to to this. And I began sort of reading books on it, and that expanded into, you know, John Keel's stuff on Strange Creatures and people like Brad Steiger. And, um, you know, those are the people I sort of got into when I was like, you know, 10, 11, 12. And many other kids at school were reading, like, um, British equivalents of the Hardy Boys. You know, I was reading all about <laughs> John Keel conjuring up you know, ultra-terrestrials and some weird dimension, or whatever.
1: So, and your latest one is Monster Files. Um, what, uh, what was your, what's your, what's your favorite cryptid?
0: Um, well, probably I've got a couple. I mean, one of them um, actually not too far from where I grew up in central England, which is like a, I grew up near a place in a county called Staffordshire, which is a heavily forested and wooded area. And there's a legend there of a Bigfoot-type creature that's been seen on a number of occasions. become known as the man-monkey. And stories go back to the 19th century. But what I find it fascinating is because, in some respects, the creature seems flesh and blood, but there are other aspects to it where it's more sort of paranormal-like, you know, has these sort of supernatural overtones to it, which I think, looking at some of these creatures, a lot of them do, actually. I don't think they're just... um, sort of flesh and blood animals i think there's something more supernatural about them so that was one that is one of the favorites because it was so close to where i used to live that you know i could go out and investigate the area etc and the other one is the the chupacabra of puerto rico um for two reasons one I, i mean i love puerto rico i've been there on a number of occasions you know it's just a cool place to go you know i could happily live in puerto rico it's a particularly san juan the capital it's a you know a great place um and but also um you know going to puerto rico and speaking to the locals when you get story upon story from very credible people like police officers veterinarians farmers and members of the public all telling you they've seen this weird creature like like a hairless monkey with bat-like wings and this row of spikes down its head like a punk rock mohawk or something like that you know it's it's difficult to dismiss what they're saying so uh you know that that's probably the one the other one i have a lot of you know a favorite one i have a lot of good memories of you know because you get to run around puerto rico as well
1: yeah i guess it doesn't matter what you're looking for
0: (laughs) no really no um what about uh
1: what about the loch ness monster you how was your trip to loch ness
0: well, yeah, I mean, Loch Ness is an interesting place. I mean, um, you know, where I lived in England, Britain overall, you know, Wales, Scotland and, and England combined isn't a large nation. Um, actually, a lot of people don't realise that, again, England, Scotland and Wales combined is actually smaller in terms of square miles than the state of Texas where I live now. You know, that's, that's how small Britain is. Uh, but Loch Ness is actually, you know, a large body of water. It's like 22 miles long, roughly about a mile wide and about 800 feet deep and it's only sort of when you get there you realize the sort of sheer size of it um now i'm not i actually do believe there are unknown animals in loch ness i don't personally go with the idea of the plesiosaur you know surviving marine reptile from the you know the dinosaur era i think there are a number of things that aren't in in favor of it being a plesiosaur i think there's a good possibility that these creatures could be giant eels. Now, there are reports of eels growing to like 12 to 14 feet, but, you know, we could be talking about things that are like 30 feet long, which is unheard of, literally. But so, you know, if you were to come across a 30-foot-long eel with a body the size of like two oil drums in width, and most people probably wouldn 't quibble that that was a monster. <laughs> you know it becomes barreling towards you through the water, so you know the Scottish tourist board might love it if it was a plesiosaur, but I think it's probably going to be possibly like a, a mutated creature like a suffering suffering from something like gigantism um, of a regular species if you like
1: so that so would that make it a one of or
0: Well, you know, that's interesting because um, eels, you know, to to mate, they all sort of migrate back to the Sargasso Sea, Um, and most of them live at least 10 years before that, and there are stories of what are known as eunuch eels, where they don't spawn, and they don't migrate back to the Sargasso, they stay where they were, and they can actually live, and live, and live, and grow, and grow, and grow, and we don't really know how long they can live for, and how big they can grow, so... You know, I think it's possible that some of these eunuch eels, as they're known, could be responsible for the Loch Ness Monster. And at any given time, there only might be a couple of them. You know, you don't you don't have a colony because the others don't mutate and, you know, and grow to massive size. It's like a spontaneous mutation in one or two. Mm. So, you know, I think that could explain why sometimes we have like a wave of sightings of the Loch Ness Monster that go on for like five or six years. And then it goes quiet for another 10 years or something, and then it suddenly starts up again. Maybe that could be explainable if, you know, you've got one creature that lived for like 15 years, it dies, and then there's nothing. And then another mutation comes along in another five years, and then the sightings start again. And for, for us, it looks like, well, there's got to be a colony of them. But actually, there might not be. You know, it may just be one random or two random ones at, at any given time.
2: So do you think that could explain Champy and the yogopogo too then?
0: Well, I mean, it could do. I mean, granted, I'll be the first to admit, we're dealing with sort of a lot of unknown quantities and, you know, different angles. I mean, for example, one of the things that the eel scenario doesn't necessarily explain is like the large, thick, humped back, you know. I mean, an eel can certainly bend its body and change it, but, um, you know, whether or not it would actually be able to arch it into a complete hump, that's a different thing. So some of the reports, you know, I think we've got to look at all cases on their own merits. I mean, for example, here in Texas, where I am, um, you know, I mean, I, I live just on the fringes of Dallas and, you know, I can go only an hour or so to where there have been reports of lake monsters. But when you look into them, they're not like the Loch Ness Monster or Champ. A lot of them sound like Really big catfish. And when I say really big, I mean monstrous sized catfish. And also um, very large alligator gar. Alligator gar are very ancient and strange looking fish that look a bit like an alligator. It's like an alligator's head on a long broomstick, is the best way you can describe them. Um, And, you know, they they are acknowledged to having grown up to about 11 feet long. But we've got reports from some Texas lakes of like 15 or 18 foot long monsters. So, in that sense, you know, I think some light monsters, as I said, are, could be unknown animals. Others are just giant, regular animals that, when you see them, they look like a monster. So, in other words, I think we've got to take all these stories, whether it's Champ or Ogapoga or whatever, each case has to be separately examined and, you know, not have the tendency to lump them all into it's all this or it's all that, you know.
1: Have you been to Ogopogo yet, or to uh, Okanagan? No, I actually
0: haven't <laughs> been to that one, no, it's, um, you know, the sort of sheer the... scale of the US, it sometimes makes travelling <laughs> a bit difficult, you
1: know. Yeah, it's definitely uh, worth the trip, Lake Okanagan's a pretty beautiful place.
0: Yeah, yeah that's huge, I mean, that, that like dwarfs like, <laughs> you know.
2: Hmm. Is that like uh, the pictures you have uh, on one of your Mysterious Universe blogs, I think, is actually just what we were talking about, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I did an article just the other day on, on lake monsters and why we don't ever find a corpse. You know, really? the um, the skeptics say, well, of course, they don't exist, you know. But my view is that if these creatures are some sort of fish, then, you know, whereas we get, derive oxygen from, from the atmosphere, from walking around in the air, you know, they get their oxygen from water. You know, it's basically filtered through their gills. You know, they have gills instead of lungs, like us. So, in other words, if these creatures are some sort of fish and they live chiefly or, you know, just only in the water, well, when they die, they're going to sink, you know, and the smaller fish are going to eat them. Chances are a body of that size, you know, it's not going to get washed up on the shore because it's so heavy. It's going to sink down, you know, when when it's not alive to keep its motion going. So I think that's one of the main reasons why we don't have a corpse, because, you know, you look at some of these huge lakes that are more than 100 miles long in the U.S., well, if one of these creatures dies, you've got to be in the right place at the right time on the right day just to see it. And it's got to conveniently die in front of you, you know, for you to be able to get it. And who's to say you're even going to see it if it spends all its life or the most of its life underwater? You know, so that that's why I think we haven't found these things, because the logistics of being, as I said, in the right place at the right time are just too, too massive, really.
1: Do you think uh, Charlie Sheen will have any luck?
0: <laughs> you never know. <laughs> if anyone's going to, maybe Charlie would.
1: <laughs> yeah, we were joking about that the other day. Wouldn't it be a bitch if Charlie Sheen turned out to be the one to find it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you know, if we got the answers, I mean... I don't think it would really matter, you know, it would be sort of uh, whoever it was. I mean, whoever it was that found these things, they would just be eclipsed by, you know, the story of the creature itself, you know what I mean?
2: What about some of these stories of underground caverns, like connecting lakes and oceans and all this? Uh...
0: Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a an interesting story about that with Loch Ness, I mean... Loch Ness, at one point, was open to the Atlantic Ocean. If you look at a map and you see Scotland, you'll see that Loch Ness is landlocked. Um, But during the last ice age, we know from studying the shifts in the environment um, that Loch Ness was open to the ocean. And then when you had these massive glaciers and ice, you know, for for hundreds of years, tens and hundreds of years, um, it re-sculpted the landscape. So anything that that was in the Loch prior to the last ice age, and if it didn't get out, you know, when the ground became landlocked, then, you know, it it wouldn't be able to escape unless, you know, there were, for example, tunnels underneath Loch Ness. And there have been a lot of stories about divers going down down very deep and seeing what looked like entrances to sort of wider caverns deep below the regular base of the loch. Um, And, you know, people have suggested, well, maybe these creatures sort of migrate in and out of Loch Ness. And, you know, when people talk about seeing sea serpents in the Atlantic and lake monsters in Loch Ness, maybe it's actually the same things but seen in different locations. Now, the only downside with that is that, you know, Loch Ness is freshwater and, you know, the Atlantic is, is seawater, you know, it's salt water. But there are some creatures which, which can... Um, operate and in both environments. For example, you have saltwater crocodiles and freshwater crocodiles. So it's not impossible that a creature could adapt. Um, and when you you know you see these stories about caverns and t- caves and tunnels, you know it's not out of the question that they might come and go. And that might explain why sometimes we have a rash of reports for a year or two, and then it dies down. Maybe the creatures are you know migrating and then coming back further mm. down the line. Mm.
1: Isn't it crazy that we can land shit on Mars, but we still can't find uh, these tunnels at the bottom of the oceans or the, at the well, bottom of the lakes?
0: Well, you know, the, the, the main reason is because, you know, landing people on Mars and whatever, you know, you have government funding to a massive degree, you know, it's like... If I had unlimited funding, in the same, you know, in the same way that NASA, the government funds NASA and then NASA builds whatever and you know flies it to Mars, you know, if I had unlimited funding to hire a mini sub for six months and and rent a property on the shores of you know um, Lake Champlain or whatever, there's a good chance, you know, I could find something. But most of us in this field, you know, we're not millionaires by any means. And, you know, unless we win Powerball or the lottery or whatever, we're not going to be able to hire a sub for six months and, you know, a big cabin on the on the lakeside and do this, you know, permanently, as I said, for, um, you know, however long. And so for that reason, you know, I think people don't realize that, that, you know, we're sort of limited by what we can do with available funding. You know, it's easy to land things on Mars when you've got a billion dollar budget you
3: know what
1: I mean mm-hmm. yeah and I suppose uh, I said su- I and the fact is like most a lot of the people in this field are working day jobs and doing this in their spare time I mean there's well, there's, right. there's, a, there's yeah. only a few of you that have had uh, had enough success to to do it as a full-time job and even you are are doing other other things on like you said your 40 percent of your writing is in a different field well,
0: yeah, I mean- yeah i mean i i couldn't earn a living from writing books there's just no way but i do earn a living working as a writer across the board you know and um but in saying that i mean even earning a living as a as a writer you know i have to constantly do it monday to friday nonstop i'm not complaining you know but no, i'm just no. pointing out so people understand that you know it's i have to do that monday to friday and keep regular job hours to stay on top of things you know um And so even earning a living as a writer, you know, I I couldn't take two months off to go to this lake or that lake because I wouldn't be earning money in the day, you know, to live or pay bills or whatever. Um, So in that sense, that is problematic, And, and that's the difference. You know, a lot of the skeptics and debunkers just don't appreciate that, you know, they say, well, we found this and we found that. Well, yeah, because you're funded by a government agency for half a billion dollars. Anyone can find things, you know, when you've got something like that. It's far less easy to do when, you know, you've got, like, a, a wife and a kid or a, a job that, you know, you work nights or whatever, you know what I mean? That's yeah. that's yeah. That's the day-to-day logistics of, of everyday living that people don't think about when you're trying to apply it to investigating things, you know.
2: Yeah, and there's not really a lot of money in the field. I mean, the, <clears throat> they always seem oh. to, the skeptics and debunkers always seem to think that uh, – People are out there writing books to make millions. I mean it's not that's not the case. Um do you ever get no, frustrated I mean, I did, with them uh, at all? Like do yeah, they
0: give you a hard I did, time? I do. Yeah, I mean I've had that before. People say, Oh, Nick Redford writes books for the money. I'm like do you know what I earn from writing yeah. books, you know? It's it's not like people think, you know, a twenty thousand or fifty thousand dollar advance, you know, it's a small figure, you know, and, and it's usually split across a year, like two, six monthly payments. And again, I'm not complaining. It's just, no. It just pisses me off when people yeah. say, you know, they assume I'm living in, you know, a mansion with a Ferrari or whatever. I've had this <laughs> a lot where people say, oh, you know, you do it for the money. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if I was doing it for the money, I'd be doing something else. <laughs> Fifty <laughs> you know Shades I mean? of Nick. What's that?
1: You'd be writing uh, crap like Fifty Shades of Nick.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I wouldn't be writing. You know, it's like writing (laughs) is a notoriously hazardous job. You know, you've got to, if you do that full time, you do it because it's your passion. Yeah, yeah. And you do what you have to. You know, I I am a sort of person who's driven, you know, to succeed. I I don't, you know, I don't accept defeat. And so I I do what I have to do, you know, to earn a living. And as I said, I, I branch out and do all sorts of different writing, like Penthouse and military magazines and regular newspapers and music stuff and all sorts of things because that's what i have to do you know? mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean if people understood the reality you know of of how hazardous how I mean, it's rewarding in terms of you know you can see when you've done something you get your books in mail or whatever it's rewarding but i wouldn't recommend it to anybody who wants to become a millionaire you know the jk rowlins and the stephen kings of the world are the exception yeah. You know, most people are like me where you you gotta be careful, you know, and you you keep your electric bills down and you know, yeah, you, yeah. you have to just be careful, you know? yeah.
3: Thank you.
2: Speaking of the skeptics and and the debunkers, do you you think, uh, has it been changing our culture? Is it opening up at all in the last decade or two?
0: Um, Well, I think the one thing that I am encouraged about is that certainly in the last 10 years, you know, TV has, has promoted paranormal stuff at a far greater amount than it did, you know, years ago. Um, and there isn't the outright debunking and you know just poking fun at it that there used to be, you know. And a lot of these paranormal shows, the today the you know the believers and the investigators are given a good forum. You know they always have the skeptics and the debunkers on because they feel they've got to balance it out. But at least you know the believers are also given a good uh, ability to, to you know present their argument. So I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, and, and unfortunately, the way TV works, that's about the best you're going to get is sort of a balanced, where, they, you know, they feel they've always got to bring in the sceptics, even if, you know, even if they've got nothing new to say, or they're just saying tired old arguments all the same, they feel they've got to round them up and bring them on in the wheelchairs and the walking sticks, you know, the things have been parroting for 60 years, you know. But, um, so for that reason, that pisses me off. Right. But I am encouraged that, you know, we have got more of a voice, particularly with reality TV. But in saying that, reality TV, you know, is a bit of a double-edged sword because I, I did a blog post on this atme blog, and it's actually the most popular post of the blog, uh, and it has been for like a year or whenever I wrote it. And I, it was basically like the top ten things that piss me off about reality TV, you know, all this, everything's all the same, you know, um, night scope equipment running around the woods, what the hell was that, did you hear this, you know, and they're all exactly the same, you can substitute Bigfoot for lake monsters for UFOs, but the formula is identical, and reality TV, done right, can be sort of really gripping, groundbreaking, you know, at the edge TV. It's been watered down and sanitized and essentially, you know, it's had its nuts cut off in simple terms. And it, people just now, you have all these shows that last like six episodes where oh, we'll roll into town, we'll take the video cameras, we'll take the night vision equipment, we'll have the guys running around the woods sounding breathless and we'll get them to shout what was that six times. And that's the show. You know.
2: Yeah, and then and even like when stuff it, happens, they they seem to, like you said, cleanse it or edit it out or something. Like I've heard yeah. stories where it sounds like there's some great footage and there's some true phenomena yeah. happening, and it just doesn't get presented in that light. Well, that's
0: a, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I've seen shows done, and actually been on a couple where, you know, they they actually did pick up some interesting stuff, kind of like what you're talking about. But the theme of the show, unfortunately, was to try and make fun of the researchers. And it got left out because yeah. you know, the, the data actually didn't make fun. It upheld their angle. And, you know, that isn't what they wanted. So, you know, you're up against that. But the way I also look at it is that any publicity, I won't say any publicity has got publicity. But when at least you get a voice, and particularly yeah. on live TV, you know, that that's that's much better as well, you know.
1: Yeah, and the colossal expansion of the internet in the last 15 years isn't isn't hurting oh, yeah. I mean, either.
0: Yeah, I mean, anybody can have a say on this or that nowadays, and I think that's that's an important thing, because you're right, you know, prior to that, it was just the speakers at conferences and people on TV shows and other people think, well, you know, I could do that, I could talk about this. And now people can, you know, you with YouTube or whatever, you know, just upload your own videos or whatever and, and say, Is it, and I think that's a good thing. I mean... I actually know you know, there's a lot of egos in this field. I don't have much time for that and but there are people who are like well I'm the researcher of this, you know, I'm the Roswell researcher and I'm the face on Mars person and I'm that, you know <laughs> no. and well it's all it's all crap, you know. It's like we should all we're all we're all looking for answers. And and that's why, you know, I enjoy going to conferences, hanging out with people, you know, I'm not one of these um, well, don't talk to me, you know, I'm an author, you know, and who, who are you to talk to? You know, I'll be, I'm, I'm in the bar hanging out with everybody having a beer and talking about whatever people want to talk about, you know, um, because I view it that we're all on the same level, and, and somebody who's been in the subject for 50 years might never find the answers. Somebody might come along tomorrow who's been in it six months and they're only 17 years old and they stumble on the truth, you know what I mean? Oh, so,
3: Charlie Sheen.
0: Oh, Charlie Sheen. So to, you know, to sort of take this stupid approach of I'm this, I'm that, and no one else can touch my territory, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous, and it just makes the person look totally stupid, you know.
3: Yeah,
2: that's what, Darren and I met you at the at the Paradigm Symposium last year, and yeah. that's what I really, I really like that about you, just how, uh, how you hung out so much, how you're approachable, you know, you guys sat down and, and chatted about stuff for hours. I mean, Chilled it's just fascinating, yeah.
0: Well, well, I mean, I don't, it's not like a put on or a, you know, or forced. It's because, you know, I like to hang out with people. Uh-huh. I don't go to conferences to, you know, do the lecture and then run off the stage and sit in the hotel room, you know. <laughs> it's just stupid. Yeah, make the bands. Um, Yeah, so, um, I, you know, I, I enjoy hanging out, you know, being social. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not one of these sort of, you know, peering through the blind types or whatever. So, and like I said, it's, you know, it's, it's fun as well. That, that's the whole point. I mm-hmm. mean, what I do and what we do should be, you know, you should, yeah, it's important and it's research and there's important things to find out that could change the world. But equally, you know, you've got to have fun in life as well and make it entertaining at the same time. So.
2: Yeah, I think it's opening up a bit myself. Like I'm more comfortable talking to people. Well, not that I was ever really that uncomfortable, but... People seem to be open to this now. In my day to day life, I can talk to people, and that's why I want to do the podcast too—to just be able to talk about this stuff, and for people to be able to listen and and think. uh, You know, it's okay to talk about you know meditation, spiritual stuff, UFOs, cryptids, whatever the case is.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, my view has always been, you know, if people if people like what I say and or don't like what I say, okay. You know, if I bump into somebody or just get talking with someone, I say, hey, what do you do? You know, I don't say, oh, well, you know, I'm a writer. No, I I say, you know, I write books about Bigfoot or whatever. And they're like, (laughs) oh. (laughs) You know, sometimes they're like, oh, well, you know, you can just see the the brain sort of, you know, thinking, not case. (laughs) Uh, But then other times when you actually get speaking to people, I often find most people will actually say, well, you know, I don't really mention it, but I saw this or a friend of mine told me this. You know what I mean? It's like everybody whether it's like a ghostly experience or, you know, a dead relative or a UFO sighting or a cryptid or anything, you know, everybody has got a story that either they were personally involved in, even just once in a lifetime, or they've got a friend or a family member who told them something. And, you know, so that's why I'm happy to talk about it, because I know in everybody's closet, so to speak, there's at least one story like this anyway. So, you know, they've got no reason or, you know, to sort of look at me and judge me <laughs> you
1: know what I mean <laughs> so you're back uh, I think you're back as keynote at this year's Paradigm uh,
0: I, I don't think I'm the keynote no oh um, I thought Micah ever? said
1: you were going to be the keynote speaker
0: oh no I that's mean, another
2: no. scoop Darren thought he had
0: <laughs> 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 yeah, I think you're living in like another alternative universe where I was crowned king <laughs> of England or something <laughs> <laughs> But um, no, I, mean, I I don't care when I speak. You know. I actually enjoy speaking first, you know, because then I've got the weekend. Oh, yeah, you don't have <laughs> you to worry go, about it.
1: You know. Yeah, exactly. So, I think that's... No, about... I, mean, I,
0: don't, I don't mind, you know. I'll, I don't mind if I speak to 10 people or 10,000. It's, uh, you know, it's all the same. Yeah, you
2: seem pretty comfortable up there. What are you going to talk about this year then?
0: Um, well, I've got a new book out in... It actually comes out <laughs> two days before the conference. It's called For Nobody's Eyes Only, and it's like a study of um it takes a different approach it's like a study of ufo cases and conspiracy cases where the evidence is missing like for example there's a chapter on roswell you know and it's like when the the Government Accounting Office, General Accounting Office, excuse me, um, did its investigation of Roswell in uh, 1994. They found that all the outgoing messages from Roswell, from the base, from 45 to 49, were just gone. Ugh. You know, they couldn't, and they still have never found them. So it's like that. It's it's called for nobody's eyes only because it deals with cases where it's not so much the evidence has been, um, you know, it, that it's there and we know something happened. It's just where, you know, the government is saying. We're withholding it and you can't see it. It's like somebody's removed it, you know, and it's in some... Anger 18 type. Yeah, place yeah. There.
2: Like the U.S. Uh, so I'll
0: be speaking about that anyway.
2: That's good. So, like the UK, when they released all the files and the Rendlesham ones were gone, that type of thing? Yeah, that's,
0: yeah. there's a chapter on Rendlesham that, that digs into that whole issue of um, all the Rendlesham files that are missing and that should be there but aren't <laughs> there. But it's not just a case of saying, you know, repetitively saying, oh, they're missing, oh, they're missing. No, it digs into where they might be and the rules and regulations that can be applied to you know, actually hiding files and, and illegally denying their exi- their existence, you know. So it looks into the sort of bureaucratic issues as well of how and why material can be, you know, uh, withdrawn and, and then denied, etc. So.
2: That's a great idea. So you're finding lots of, lots of uh, info for that book?
0: Yeah, that book's actually finished because the way it works, you know, it takes the publisher like three months to read it, proof it, edit it, design the cover, get all the pictures in order, and you know that's like a dual process back and forth between me and the publisher and the editor. So, um, but that'll be out like two days before the conference. So I'll be speaking on on that one there. But uh, yeah, I like you know I enjoy doing lectures, and it's like the, 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 anything the first one you do, you know, it's a bit nerve jangling. The first one I did was like I, I you know mid 90s, and uh, you kind of race your way through it, and <laughs> at the end you're like. What did I say you know, yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean your, your mouth's kind of dry, and then the next one a little bit easier and whatever, and then after that it's just like like you know learning to swim or ride a bike, you know it's something you don't you just get used to it then so.
1: So we were talking a, a couple of weeks ago to uh, Nigel Wright uh, out of the UK. And he, oh, yeah. was, he was talking about in the late 90s, like 97, I think, there was yeah. like uh, some UFO and some paranormal flaps and mutilations mm-hmm. sweeping across the UK. Were you still over there when that was going on?
0: Yeah, I moved over here in 2001. Nigel's actually a good friend of mine and um, I used to spend a lot of time down uh, by where Nigel lives when all that was going on. But yeah, there was sort of uh, in Devon, uh, where Nigel was living at the time, um, yeah, you had this huge wave, like ninety six to about ninety eight, where people were seeing UFOs and there were strange stories like whale mutilations in the in the ocean. Um, you know, bodies, uh, whale bodies being washed up on the shore with like um, what looked like organs, as if they'd been surgically removed, and people were seeing strange lights hovering over the sea and a lot of odd stuff as well. Like a sudden increase in witchcraft and what sounded like satanic rituals and strange creatures supposedly being conjured up through these rituals and then wildly on the loose in the, in the moors and whatever, you know, it was sort of, and Nigel actually co-wrote a, a book with a good friend of mine, John Downs, called The Rising of the Moon, yeah. which is all about that um, that wave of encounters.
1: Yeah, he was a great chat. He actually does some blogging for us over at the Grimerica site as well. Oh, He's, cool. Yeah, Nigel's a great guy. I'm, I'm glad we are past crossed. Mm-hmm.
2: So, what about speaking of phenomena in the UK then? I don't have you written about crop circles or have you ever been interested? Have you seen them?
0: Yeah, yeah, I've been in a lot of crop circles over the years, um, going back through to the 90s and, and the 2000s, and um, I've, been, I've done a lot of investigations of them. Uh, I'm not 100% convinced they're actually tied to UFOs, I think it could be sort of more a paranormal thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the, one of the interesting things that a lot of people don't realize, you know, you have the skeptics and the debunkers saying, oh, they're all made by people. Well, you know, we know that people do make some of them, but there's this sort of unspoken angle within the, well, not so much unspoken, but he's sort of kept quiet, is that a lot of the the human people, I say you're the people, not the humans, <laughs> <people. laughs> the people who've made um, crop circles, a lot of them have actually had weird experiences in formations that they've made and they've actually felt uh, like channeled Mm -hmm. by something to create them. A friend of mine, Matthew Williams, um, he's made a number of very good formations and Matthew is firmly convinced that his mind was sort of, you know, something downloaded, you know, the idea into his brain and said, you know, into his subconscious, basically saying, make this formation. And... He's experience where he's made a formation and somebody else has made a very similar one on the same night. And it's like some energy has been instilled in the formation and people have had weird experiences like missing time and health um, improvements and things like that. And he actually feels that, you know, maybe there are genuine crop circles made by paranormal phenomena, but he thinks that this phenomenon uses the human makers as well. And it's kind of like... A modern-day equivalent of stone circles where, you know, they're clearly made by people like Stonehenge, but people talk about these ancient stone sites having paranormal powers and energies. And it's kind of like a modern-day equivalent, but it's not a case of... I don't think it's a case of these things being made by gleaming sources hovering over the field and then flattening them any more than I think it's made by hoaxes. I think it's far more subtle, and it has a great deal to do with things like ritual magic and portals and dimensions to other realms where maybe some sort of... almost like an ethereal intelligence comes through and, you know, sort of manipulates the the people and possibly, you know almost like remotely makes these things if that makes
3: uh-huh.
2: sense yeah I feel like that's one phenomena that's totally underestimated and, and it's yeah. almost like the one that it, it almost frustrates me more than any other one that there's still such a polarization between people that think there's a genuine phenomena and people that just debunk the whole thing and they don't want to look at any of this the plethora of ep- evidence and and strange you know things surrounding the mystery.
0: No, that's right. I mean, you know, when you've got people who've made their own formations and then other people start seeing weird things like little balls of life hovering over the formation, you know, then I think it says more about, you know, what we perceive as reality. You know, we don't really know what reality is. You know, it's almost as if you can create reality, you know, you build this formation and it somehow instills like a magical element in it, you know.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I think on, on Through the Wormhole last night, they said there's like a 5% chance that we're living in some sort of a simulation.
0: Well, you know, I mean, you've got to wonder Some, I mean, I, I find that one of the things that happens to me, and I know it happens to a lot of researchers, is that you know the more you dig into a lot of these weird things, it's like the phenomena, it no, they notice that you're looking into them. And, you know, I've started, well, once I've started, because it's gone on for years, but I experienced, like, a lot of weird synchronicities where you're looking for answers on something, and an answer that you're right then looking for pops up in, like, the weirdest way. Mm -hmm. And it is almost like, you know, reality is being created for you as you're going along, or there's some sort of guiding thing in the program, you know, that's um, pushing you down this path or, you know, downloading an update to this program or that program. And, um, you know, I often think that reality as we perceive it actually isn't what it is. You know, I think there is something to be said that we can alter reality simply by thinking about something that... Not being said that it alters the past, but it it opens up like an avenue to what you're looking into. And, you know, sort of reality joins the dots together, almost like, you know, defragmenting a computer or whatever. You know, it gets rid of the the fragmented spaces and brings it closer together. And, and I think it's like a similar thing where you're looking into something and it's almost like a defrag occurs where it brings you closer to it. You know what I mean? So.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really good way to put it.
2: I I wonder about that too, because we're so we're getting so advanced with our computer technology and our software and, and our storage capacities. And I mean, it, it wouldn't take much for a civilization thousand years or, I'm telling you, I was
1: saying last episode that our our minds have already been harvested by Google for data crunching,
3: <laughs> and this is just our, this is just to
1: keep us from re revolting.
0: Yeah. Well, who knows? You know, maybe we're all in like some vax, like in the Matrix, feeding the machines. You know, and uh, but, um, like, if uh, that is the case, I wish you know that you could like change the program just to turn the outside temperature down a little bit. You know what I mean? We don't need a simulation where. It, really does feel like 110, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what's... Uh, in all your research, is there is there anything out there that's just, like, even too, too fucked up for you, even?
0: Um, I wouldn't say things that are sort of much too fucked up. What I would say is more... There's some things that just don't really interest me. And I don't, I don't sort of... You know, people think I'm running around like a headless chicken investigating <laughs> every weird thing under the sun. You know, I'm actually not. You know, I, I've never... Investigated like a ghost, a ghost sighting yeah. or a yeah. or a haunted house,
3: yeah.
0: you know. Um, and I I rarely ever get involved in anything like straightforward political conspiracies, or you know, that's just not my area, so to speak. Um, but you know, ghost stuff, Ouija boards, that kind of thing. I've never really got into that, unless there's a case where there's like a, a UFO overtone, like with the Men in Black. You know, that's one of my big interests. And there are some cases where. They do have like paranormal and and almost like occult overtones, but I don't go out of my way to you know investigate poltergeists and that sort of thing. So it's not, but it's not because it's weird or you know it unsettles me. I, I just don't find it very interesting, and that's not any disrespect to people who do do ghost hunting. You know, we can't all be interested in the same thing. You know what I mean? Some people like restoring old aircraft or old cars. You know, somebody else likes to paint. You know, we're all different, and for me, I just don't get any sort of vibe from ghost stuff. So, you know, I stay away from that, but not for any, you know, freaky, far-out reason. Um, but, yeah, for the most part, if it's something that interests me, you know, I'll dig into it as, as deep as I can, you know, and hopefully, if not and uncover all the answers, at least, you know, say, I tried the best, you know, so...
1: Yeah, and it seems like you're trying a lot. I really, uh, the latest one I read was the one I picked up at Paradigm was uh, The NASA Conspiracies, and that that one I really enjoyed. That's my favorite
0: one so far. Oh, thanks. I mean, it's one of these things where a lot of people don't know. You know, people say, well, why did you write this book or why did you write that book? I thought the publisher assigned it and asked me to. You know, and sometimes that's what happens. I would say probably my books are sort of split 50-50 between ideas that I've submitted to the publisher, and ones where the publishers have said to me, hey, Nick, you know, we, we want somebody to write a book on this topic. Are you interested in doing it? And, you know, if I say, well, not really, it's not my field, you know, they'll go to somebody else, you know, thank you very much. And if, they, if I say, well, yeah, you know, they say, well, can you put us together like a 10-page synopsis? And that's, happened, that's what happened with the NASA book. You know, I, I had no intention of writing that book, but New Page said to me, hey, you know, we want to do a book on the history of NASA and UFOs are you interested in doing it? So I put the synopsis together. They liked it, and, and so I wrote it. So, you know, that, that's that's often how it works, is that, you know, it's in a, the, the book is an assignment that the publishers come up with. I mean, um, you know, that's happened with a few for New Page. Probably, I've done eight books, I think, with New Page books, and I think four were my ideas and four were their ideas.
3: That's got
2: to be flattering.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it sort of shows they have... You know that they're sort of secure in your writing style and, and knowledge that you know you're going to do solid research, etc. That they come to you rather than you having to sort of go knocking on their doors, so to speak. Um, so you know that, that's a, that's a good thing. And um, and of course, when you do it a, a few times, you know they know that they can hopefully rely on you. And, um, and and so that's what I do. You know, you just you do whatever the assignment is. Same way if you go to work and the boss says i want this done by five o'clock you know it's it's, it's the same thing really
2: mm-hmm. so what about in your normal life do you pay attention to the mainstream uh... media news at all like where do you get your kind of fix of uh... current events
0: oh you know i mean well i mean i, I sort of want you know the five and the six o'clock news um... and and the internet you know i'll sort of um... check out the regular news and then you know some alternative stuff but uh... Yeah, you know, I sort of watch the 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock news, and then I'm done with it. And I watch Bill Maher on a Friday. Well, I, I record it so I can watch it on a Saturday morning when I'm at home. I watch Bill Maher. I like his show. Um, you know, so um, I sort of try and balance it a bit between regular news and, you know, people who looking at it from a different angle or reporting on alternative news and just sort of weigh it all up and, you know, take it all in. So.
1: Yeah, you got to be careful not to... Uh go all the way into the rabbit hole or you can end up in some uh, some pretty crazy places.
0: Well, also, you know, I mean, I, as I said, I like to balance it with a normal life as well, you know. I mean, it is the sort of field where, I mean, I, I could if I wanted to, but I can't think of anything worse, you know, of being front on writing all day long and all night, you know, going to bed at 12, getting up at 6 and just doing that. And then when I'm, you know, when I've got a couple of hours spare jumping up and picking up a book off, off the shelves on Roswell or something. That that would drive me insane. I mean, literally, it would drive me insane. You know, I like to... I like to have balance, a normal life with, um, you know, what I do in the day. This is this is what I do in the day. You know, at night, if I want to watch football, you know, English football or whatever, I've got all the channels on the TV where I can watch, you know, Manchester United or Liverpool or whatever, And, you know... Roswell or Bigfoot's not even on my mind anywhere. you know. I'm I'm just following the game or whatever. And so it's important to me because I think I would get frazzled, fried, and just burned out. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I'd be like some band, you know, that's doing 300 gigs in 365 days, you yeah, know, and they fall yeah. out with each other and they split because they can't take it, you know. And, and that's why I think it's important that you... You know, you, you you make that balance in your life.
2: Yeah, no, that's good. So, back to UFOs a little bit. That's one of your favorite subjects. Mm. So, I, what's your feeling right now about the whole phenomena? What's going on with it? And, and has that feeling changed over the years as you've investigated uh, it?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, um, when I first got into it all, I, it was all like UFOs were alien spacecraft, Bigfoot was a giant ape, et cetera. I mentioned earlier, you know, I think some of these cryptic creatures have. <laughs> sort of supernatural over to the of them. But certainly in the last 15 years or so, I've come more, far more around to the idea now that the UFO phenomenon, I think it probably isn't extraterrestrial in the way we understand it. I think it's alien in the terms that it's not human. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm more inclined to think it's something that kind of coexists with us, sort of John Keel's ultra-terrestrials or Jacques Vallée's sort of messages of deception where there's a phenomenon that sort of You know coexisting like another realm or dimension that interacts with us and maybe you know over the centuries it's masqueraded in different forms to protect its real identity you know sort of the demons of thousands of years ago to goblins in the 1500s the space brothers in the 50s the greys today it's like the phenomenon's constantly mutating but throughout history we've got tales of sort of magical entities that interact with us and there's often like a like a sexual component you know you have hundreds of years ago, thousands, you have like the incubus and the succubi. Um, you know, that that would sort of um, you know, intrude on people's bedrooms in the middle of the night. In the fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred, you had fairies stealing babies and leaving what were known as changelings behind, like crude carved effigies. Today in the abductions you've got the genetic angle and the hybrid baby angle. So you know the the motif has stayed, the, has stayed the, ch- the same, but the entities have changed. And I think we, I actually think we're dealing with the same phenomenon, but it's camouflaging itself for reasons we don't understand. And I think it, it's, it comes from far closer to home than it does from the stars. But it doesn't take away the fact that it's non-human and it, it is definitively unknown. So you know, as I said, I've done. F- further away from the extraterrestrial side, more to this, more like a cross between like, like techno-paranormal type creatures or something like that.
1: What do you, do you lend any credence to the idea that it could be like the evolution of our consciousness no, and our that. culture itself uh, in the well, changing in the phenomena?
0: Well, I do in one sense. I don't think, well, I'll tell you the way I think it is happening like that. I think this phenomenon appears or manifests for us in certain ways that are applicable and relevant to the the folklore, the pop culture, and the beliefs of the people of that era. That's why thousands of years ago these things appeared as demons. It's why in the Middle Ages they appeared as fairies and goblins. And today in an era when we believe in extraterrestrials, that's who they claim to be. And I think the reason they appear like that is because I think they have the ability to get into our minds and sort of pull out the imagery that's locked in there. You know, it's like if you ask any kid over the age of probably five, draw an alien, they're going to draw a big head with black eyes because everybody over that age just knows that image. You know, they don't have to be taught. They just know what an alien is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. And I think the phenomenon can pull that out of us and it appears according to how our perceptions expect it to. So in other words, I do think part of pop culture and our reality and who we are is responsible for how it appears not because it's just imagination but the phenomenon is responding to you know what we see and also i have a big interest in what are called tulpas that's the idea that you know the human mind can actually create imagery that it can then externalize and, and it's almost like you give birth to a paranormal creation of the mind that has like a quasi-independent existence you know, and and, um, tulpas supposedly feed on high states of human emotion. In other words, they need to be seen to frighten or excite the witness, and then they bleed the person dry of energy. It's like a psychic vampire, Vampire, you know. And that might explain why, you know, so many UFO incidents or Bigfoot encounters seem to conveniently occur when someone's around. It's almost like the event is staged for them. And maybe, you know, if the whole point is to terrify the witness... And then the phenomenon can feed on them. You know, maybe that's the whole point of the phenomenon It exists to be seen because essentially where it's food, albeit like an energy based food.
3: Hmm.
2: That's interesting.
1: Yeah. That's fucking crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully that shit don't happen to me. I seen a UFO once, but I I felt okay after.
0: Well, you know, the reason I mentioned that is because that's something that pops up in a lot of men in black stories. Um, where for example, you know, somebody'll see a UFO and they get the visit from these MIBs, which in reality, you know, they're nothing like Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones in the movies. They're sort of creepy little guys, like five feet tall, you know, skin the colour of a bottle of milk, very creepy and you know, have this menacing atmosphere of dread almost it creates in the person. And a lot of witnesses have said that when the MIB had interviewed them or you know, interrogated them, the person has felt like a diabetic who's missed a meal you know and they're starting to crash and their energy levels are gone as if these entities these MIB have literally kind of you know bled them dry of some sort of psychic energy there's a, there's a lot of stories like that and it makes me wonder if you know the whole point of the MIB visit isn't necessarily to to silence the person but to terrify them because you know it acts as a source of, of energy and in simple terms food you know for the uh, for the MIB.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think I've even heard some stories where you, they've got no like eyebrows or
0: no oh, yeah, eyelashes. Look, yeah. yeah, no. I mean, you know, literally no hair. I mean, you know, I shave my head every day, but you know, by five o'clock in the afternoon, it looks it looks like the stubble, you look like five o'clock shadow on your chin. You know what I mean? Um, but these, they're like they look adults, but they've got like the skin and the texture of, like a baby's face. You know, which looks so they look really weird and unsettling, and people people feel this sense of there's something not right and something unsettling about them. They've got these starey eyes, and more than a few people have actually said the eyes are kind of like the eyes of a dog when it, just when it's about to bite you, you know, and you back away because you can tell what's coming next. Um, so, you know, they're very strange and odd-looking characters that do create, like, a really unsettling feeling in people.
2: Hmm. When you talk about all this... Uh... Tolpa stuff and and some of the consciousness or almost telepathic aspect of it it makes me think of channeling and and i and i think that channeling also doesn't get a fair shake from the the whole 14 community like i've i've read some books and like i don't follow it a lot but i've i've seen and heard enough that i kind of think that it should be taken a little bit more seriously but then you've got those extreme cases that everybody wants to kind of make fun of the whole channeling aspect
0: well, yeah, I mean, that's unfortunate. You know, that's the same in every aspect of the UFO phenomenon. You know, somebody can pick up a really credible case, and then somebody will say, well, this is just garbage because, you know, look at this story. Um, but, I mean, I wrote a book back in 2000 and, um, 2009 called Contactees, mm-hmm. which was a study of, you know, people like Georgia Adamski, George Van Tassel, and most of the early um, contactees, like Howard Menger and Truman Bethroom, Orfeo Angelucci. And a lot of researchers say they just write these stories off about the Space Brothers, you know, coming down. I don't. I don't take the stories literally. Yeah. What I think is that these stories was, were almost like visionary, and it was this phenomenon interacting and responding to the pop culture beliefs of the period and, and appearing as the form of, like, long-haired aliens or hot-looking space women or whatever, you know. <laughs> but that, I think they were more visionary experiences where the person not imagined it, that they had, like, a Matrix-type experience. Um, and in a lot of these cases, you know, the witnesses, the contrary to what people think, it wasn't all, like, metal saucers coming down and landing. They had these experiences in altered states where, you know, the laws of the space flutters or whatever would be channeled into their minds. And And, again, I don't think a lot of it is hoaxing or anything like this. You know, you can go back, you look at, for example you know, this is the story of Moses going up the mountain and getting the Ten Commandments. Well, there's not much difference between, you know, Moses going up into the mountain, seeing a burning bush and being given these rules and regulations about how to live, specifically 10 of them, and a contact team in the 50s going out into the California desert and meditating and having these laws and rules channeled into his or her head saying, this is how you've got to live. There's not much difference. So... You know, I think it's important that we we shouldn't ignore channeling. What I do think is that there, I think there are benevolent and malevolent and manipulative entities out there. And I think what we do have to be is very careful how we interpret the message that comes through from channeling and how we should interpret it and accept it. And even if we should accept it or should we be suspicious of it? You know, is it trying to help us? Is it trying to teach us? Is it manipulating us? Or is it outright lying to us? You know, I think we've got to take each each thing its merits or otherwise. But channeling, you know, is something that I mean, throughout the centuries, it's it's always gone on. People have always communed with higher beings, whether it's in like a wide awake form or it's with psychedelics, you know, altered states, you know, whether we're talking about LSD, peyote, whatever, you know, it, it's something that's always gone on, and messages have come through. And I think it's an like a a part of human nature that we are able to contact other forms of life, but you know, it's like when you're dealing with people, you know, you got to be careful as to what the person's telling you. You know,
1: um, uh, we had uh, we had a great chat just the other day about uh, psychedelics with uh, Dennis McKenna, and uh, oh, it's yeah. it's funny because you know people describe a lot of the the same sort of things uh, when they're having these experiences on psychedelics.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, as I said, if it's psychedelics or, you know, if it's something like um, mescaline or peyote or DMT, you know, the the thrust of many of these experiences, is if the person, you know, sort of sees metaphorical doors opening and things come through, it's as if the phenomena, when you're in altered state, it's like the phenomena recognizes that you can see it. You know, it's like its cover's being blown because... In normal reality, you don't see it. You know, it it's the best way I can describe it, it's kind of like putting on um, heat-seeking glasses, you know, and, and not before you've got them on, you're in the woods late at night, and you don't see anything. You put the heat-seeking glasses on, you see the outline of this wild boar roaming 20 feet in front of it. It's like that. You know, it's sort of you've seen something that was there, but you, you weren't able to recognize it beforehand. And I think that's like that with psychedelics, that phenomena exist around us, but you have to be in an altered state to at least see some of it. Mm. And I think, you know, whatever puts you in that altered state, it's the state that is important, not necessarily what it was that got you there. You know, sometimes people can achieve this through things like transmeditation, meditation, where there are no psychedelics involved, but they're able to still open the same door. So it is a case of if you can get your mind into that altered um, state, then things can happen, you know. But these, the important and weird thing is these things can see, that you can see them. That's when it can get a little bit dicey if you're dealing with, you know, malevolent ones. So.
2: Speaking of meditation, do you do you ever partake in um, meditative...
0: I, I, well, I've done a few things like that. I mean, what I have done on a, on a lot of occasions is sort of, you know, put the word out, you know, sort of lay quiet still, meditate, try and get yourself into an altered state, and put the word out or a thought out of something that you want to look into. You know, I mean, it's, people might think this sounds crazy, but when I've been investigating something, I've hit a brick wall, I've actually done this, mm-hmm. and, and then forgot about it. A couple of days later, somebody will contact me out the blue, you know, my father worked at whatever, and he told me this story. It's actually related to something that I was researching, you know and uh, and that's happened on a lot of occasions to where i do believe you know you put the word out and you're able to do it in a fashion where you know it projects a message that something picks up on it and if it's you know if it's a positive thing it comes back at you in a positive way you know and that's why i always say to people if you get involved in the paranormal be careful you know what you ask for because i think people who are sort of of a weak character and things like that there are. I actually do really believe there are sort of like you know malevolent, sinister entities there that get their grips into grips into weak-willed people, and that's why sometimes you know their lives collapse. You know everything goes wrong for them, or they get further and further into the occult, and you know they everything just goes totally wrong. And that's why you know I always say be careful because it isn't all sort of you know cool and. And great. There's there's hazards to look for.
1: So. Yeah, it's like the uh, the uh, whatever you would call the partition separating the two two realities isn't as 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 wide as we might think.
0: No, it's it's like a click of a, the fingers away, you know. But it's it's how you access it. And I think these phenomena, they can do it naturally, or you know, it's it's second nature to them. It's like us jumping in a swimming pool or something, you know, if we walk from land to water, and things like that with them. But for us. You know, most of us, most of the time, can't do it. It's just occasionally when you're in the right frame and the setting's right and everything else. You know, it's like with, set, with, with psychedelics, you know, the setting is as important, and, the, uh, you know, the mood and the setting are as equally as important parts of it. You know, sometimes under psychedelics, if you go into it in, um, you know, a, a concerned, worried, and negative sense and worry it's all going to go wrong, chances are. Experience, the experience vision will, you know, that's that's why it isn't for everybody because it's like some people can't think outside of, you know, some people just think negative on everything. You know, they don't think about what can go right. So it's, it's probably not for them, you know.
1: Yeah, bad trips are
0: shitty. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, people, I, I think it's important, you know, to be responsible about stuff. You know, it's not like, oh, you're just some stoner, you know, or whatever, um, you know, where you're going to... Uh, you know, try and manifest aliens and crash on the couch with a bag of potato chips. You <laughs> know, it's not like that. It's more along the lines of actually opening your mind to the idea that something else is there and sort of subconsciously inviting it in, which is, you know, it's far different from, you know, just looking for nuts and bolts aliens or whatever.
1: Well, Nick, we'd we'd like to really thank you again for coming on. It's been an absolutely fascinating chat. Uh, before we let you go, do you wanna do you wanna let the listeners know kind of where where they can track your stuff down? Uh, anything else? Maybe you want uh, people to know about, and we'll we'll link to it all in the show notes, of course. As right, well.
0: Cool. Well, yeah. I mean, people can reach me at my blog, which is called Nick Redfern's World of Whatever, and the address is uh, <laughs> Nick Redfern 40, and Fortean F O R T E A N dot uh, blogspot dot com, and um, as I said, the, the the other blogs that I used to have, they're all listed at that blog. But that's the one I update pretty much every day, and um, you know it covers everything from UFOs, Bigfoot, strange creatures, conspiracies, you name it. And um, I'll be doing a couple of upcoming conferences. Um, one the uh, Paracon conference in September, in uh, Kansas City. Then I'll be speaking at a Mufon conference in Philadelphia in the first weekend of October. Huh. Then the Paradigm conference, Paradigm symposium, excuse me, in Minneapolis in late October. And but all all the exact details and dates uh, are listed on the right-hand side of the blog. So or well, people can reach me at Facebook. Just type me in at Facebook and whatever. So.
1: And uh, Twitter as well. Are you on Twitter too?
0: Oh yeah, I'm on Twitter as well. And. Um, I, I usually, what I usually do with Twitter mainly, I just sort of post links there of latest things I do. But, uh, you know, Facebook and, and the blog is where I post a lot of material. And um, there are actually a few Nick Redfern's on Facebook, but uh, there's a new photograph of me wearing an English England T-shirt with an England Union Jack flag on. So if you see that one, that's me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'll. I'll. Uh, we'll track it down and link to that in the show notes so all people right. can track you right down. And then, of course, uh, Graham and I are both planning on attending Paradigm if all goes according to plan as well. Oh, cool. So we'll see you there again.
0: Uh, well, I doubt the cha- I, I didn't realize till I checked the site the other day because I haven't had my flight tickets or whatever come yet. But I didn't realize it's at a, a new venue for this year. So.
1: Yeah, we just found out too. But I think uh, rooms are going to be a little cheaper. I, it's it's really too bad because that DoubleTree Hilton it was a good kind of layout for everything. Yeah, right? and,
2: yeah, I'm happy though because it's. I'd I'd rather be closer to downtown so you can kind of take off and you got a little well,
1: some more true, options, yeah. you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. It should be a good a good gig again. I think they'll get a good turnout.
1: So. Okay. Well, thanks again, Nick. And uh, we'll probably have. Hopefully, we can have you on again when uh, when the new book comes out in October.
0: All right. That sounds great, guys. Thanks a lot.
2: Oh, that was our chat with Nick Redfern. I was uh, pretty pleased with that.
1: Yeah, it was good. Nick's a fascinating guy. He's so uh, hopefully we can have him on again in the future. When when did he say his new book was coming out?
2: Right before Paradigm, I think, which is uh, mid-October.
1: Yeah, it's uh, Nobody's Eyes Only.
2: For Nobody's Eyes Only. Yeah. yeah, it sounds really
1: cool. Yeah, that'll probably be pretty good. Like uh, most, most of Nick's stuff is pretty good. Like yeah. I read a lot of his blogs on like Mysterious Universe and shit like that. And then I've read his NASA book was good as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I I have a hard time imagining a guy like him having so much balance in his life with all the all the crazy writing he does and all the investigating, but that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I want to track down some of his writing for uh for fashion and shit. See what I can find.
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe. So uh by the time this comes out, there may be a day or two of time to get questions in for Grant Cameron, and he's he's coming up on the 31st, and we'll have him out, published uh, probably August 4th, something like that?
1: Yeah, sometime in that first week, of August. Yeah. There's a long weekend in there, too, so we'll yeah. see what happens. Um, our next episode out will be Michael Cremo and Red Bill Junkie.
2: Yeah, that that that's a good one.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good one you guys will want to miss that. Uh RPG is always good and then the Mike w- the Cremo interview went really well really well too.
2: Yeah. I hope we had a lot of technical difficulties again with uh RPG, so Hopefully that that'll sound okay.
1: Yeah, uh doesn't seem like there's going to be any way around that, but uh but uh, it's worth it. It works yeah. out in the end. It's always worth it. It just seems to be a real pain in the ass trying to get it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think we just got to, whenever the connection's strong, we just got to hammer it out as fast as possible.
1: Yeah, it always seems like, it's like when we talk about certain things, the signal gets it all fucked.
2: Yeah, I know, I was thinking, it's, it seems content-based <laughs> quality. So I
1: think that's probably about it, Dave. Eh? You got anything else you want to add before? Of course, uh, we're going to have links to everything, uh, all Nick's books and his websites and all that shit, we'll have all that uh, in the show notes as usual. Um, as well as all the music that you heard.
2: Yeah, we'll link to all that. So that's about it, Darren. See you in a couple days.
1: Okay, see you guys next time.
2: Bye.
0: And typewriters. Soon, they'll have written the greatest novel known to man. Let's see. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times! You stupid monkey! Oh,
3: shut up.